Hi, I'm Caesar, and you're listening to Sound Encounters, a music podcast where I explore new and classic releases, different genres, and your favorite artists and bands. Episode 7, week 7, almost hitting 10 weeks of doing this. Well, I guess I skipped a couple of weeks because I wasn't sure how this podcast was going to work out. I was still in the process of figuring out how I wanted to do this podcast, how I wanted to format it. But this is our seventh episode now. Got a good show for you later today. I'll go over that in just a bit. But I was curious, how is, uh, how is quarantine going for you guys? As of recently, I feel like I've been listening to more and more music, just listening to old classics that I haven't listened to before. Believe it or not, I have not listened to the Rolling Stones until just very recently. And I was listening to Baggage Banquet, and Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street, as well as Jimi Hendrix and Leonard Cohen, just, you know, sitting down on my laptop with a nice cup of coffee and just sitting back and enjoying the music. But I also like to take uh, some time to read a bit, whether it be articles or books that I got for my birthday recently. I actually got a, a handful of books that I've been sort of making my way through. And then I like to Maybe do a little exercise, go for a little walk. I feel like that's how most of my days have been going for the past couple of months. You know, with a little bit of variation. I, I will go out to the store sometimes. I'll try to change things up so I can kind of avoid reliving the same day Groundhog style. I mean, the schedule is nice. Some structure is nice, but I feel like too much of that and I would go freaking crazy. You can tell me how your quarantine routine is going on the new Sound Encounters Twitter account at Sound Encounters. I finally made a Twitter account for the podcast. Instead of having to redirect everybody to my personal Twitter account, you could you, you could still follow that one too. I'm not a I'm not gonna tell you what to not do and do. But yes, a new Twitter account at Sound Encounters. Give me a follow. Give your boy a follow. I have a great show for you today for the main event. I'll be talking about slowcore, what that genre entails, and what I think are essential slowcore albums. But before we get to that, we have to go over this past week in music. All right, so let's take a look at this past week in music. We have a lot of singles and a couple of LPs that I like to talk about. Starting with the singles, we have a new track from Future Islands. It is called For Sure. And for those who don't know, Future Islands is a synthpop and electronica band that I am a fan of. And their music is very uplifting, very energizing. Usually it's a lot of fun. You know, they just do the synthpop and electronica thing very well. And this new track is pretty much a basic, typical Future Islands track, which is not a bad thing. It's still very fun. It's still very catchy, very uplifting and energizing. I had a good time while listening to it. Is it saying anything new? Is it doing anything new? No, but what Future Islands does in this track, they do very well. You just know what you're going to get when you listen to a new Future Islands track or album. And for sure, their newest track is definitely a very ordinary, very average Future Islands track. I would recommend go listening to that, especially if you're a fan of Future Islands. We have a new track from James Blake, Are You Even Real? So I've been a fan of James Blake for a while. I was kind of disappointed by his work after his self-titled debut, but I really did end up enjoying Assume Form a lot for the sole reason that I feel like 
his best songwriting, his best singing is featured on Assume Form. And so when I found out that he had released a new single, I was hoping for more of that or maybe even improvement, maybe a different sound. But this is a very average song from uh, JB. <laughs> Nothing that stood out to me uh, as, as very noteworthy. I did end up liking the intro. It's very spacey and ethereal with twinkling keyboards. But uh, the pianos later on in the track, the, the string section and the beat are all very average. They're all very typical of what you expect from James Blake. And then we have Dinosaurs on the Moon by The Flaming Lips. It seems like they are gearing up for a new album very, very soon. What I got to say about Dinosaurs on the Moon, it's at least better than the last one. My Religion is You. It's not as corny as My Religion is You. But I will say basically the same thing I I said about My Religion Is You, which is if you want to hear a better version of this song, listen to classic Flaming Lips releases. What they are doing on this track is basically what they did on previous releases, but not as well, not as polished, not as refined. And that really bums me out for Flaming Lips because they were one of my favorite neo-psychedelia indie rockish band when they were at their height but it seems like they're just going through the motions now their last release king's mouth wasn't all that memorable i did like a couple of tracks off of that one yeah it just seems like flaming lips really have nothing new to say not really looking forward to their new album american head which is i'm guessing releasing sometime soon but no i was i was kind of disappointed in this one now we have a odd collaboration between kid cuddy and Eminem titled The Adventures of Moon Man and Slim Shady. Two rappers that I loved in my youth. Uh, can't say their careers right now are worth following. I would say Cuddy's career has kind of been revitalized after Kid Seacos. That was a fantastic release from uh, Cuddy and Kanye. Uh, one that uh, I feel like I have more confidence in Cuddy's career after uh, that release. But I can't really say the same with Eminem. Music to be Murdered by wasn't that impressive, although it was a bit better than Revival or Kamikaze, but that's not saying much since Revival and Kamikaze are fucking horrible. (laughs) So I was a bit uh, skeptical hearing this new track. Starting off with Cuddy's verse, um, I liked it. Nothing too crazy. He's kind of hyping himself up. It seems like he was referencing the track Reborn off of Kid Seacoast in the beginning of his verse. You know, he's definitely a different person after, or a different artist after uh, releasing Kid Seacoast. And and overall, I thought his flow was pretty decent. Um, but again, nothing too crazy on his verse. It just seems like a standard Cuddy verse. On the other hand, Eminem was a huge surprise. I liked his flow because it seemed like he was slowing down to match Cuddy's energy. We do have some commentary on COVID and George Floyd on this track from from Eminem. Um, without going too much in depth with his opinions, it just seems like they're like offhand references, which was a bit odd. The mixing on his voice is also a bit distracting, but I, in terms of like lyrical content and and delivery, Eminem isn't that bad surprisingly uh very decent other things about this track i really do like the ominous and chill beat here uh the drums and the keyboards and especially the strings during eminem's verse and a very decent track it was i would even say it was a bit fun uh i might return to this one 
in the future. Don't know what's going on because Cuddy, uh, this is now his third collaboration, and and there's a rumor of a Childish Gambino collaboration. Maybe Cuddy's getting ready for a collab project, another collab project, but with different artists, not with uh, solely Kanye. But if he is releasing something, then Adventures of Moon Man and Slim Shady have definitely hyped me for this upcoming release. Good track. And then finally, the last single I want to talk about, My Rajneesh by Sufjan Stevens. Another track that's so soon, I, I really didn't expect this track a week after America came out, but after perusing the internet, I found that this track will not be featured on his upcoming release, The Ascension, and this is essentially a B-side, and he wanted to release it uh, now. And the funny thing is, I think I like this song a bit more than America for the sole reason that it incorporates Vesuvius from the Age of Odds here in this song. Uh, when those flutes come in and and those background vocals come in, I got chills. I immediately recognized it. A lot of other fans of Sufjan's work recognized it when they heard this song. Either I saw that on uh, YouTube or Reddit or Genius. Um, but yeah, th- th- that was a really great moment that I did not expect. But aside from that, the buildup of those angelic strings, the choir, the percussion, and the symphony of flutes within the first three minutes were just beautiful. And it, and it built up into this, this sampling of Age of Odds' uh, Vesuvius. And then we get another ambient ending uh, to this track like we did from America. It's honestly a song that feels like, like the structure of the song feels pretty close to America. Maybe this is why he didn't really include this track into the ascension but yeah it's, it's one of the best songs he's released in recent memory it's insane it's as epic as america again i just prefer it a little bit more but yeah i'm looking forward to the ascension this is a fantastic track go listen to it especially if you're a fan of Sufjan. and now we're moving into the albums the lps that i listen to starting with a thousand gex and the tree of clues this one is a bit different I don't think I've ever covered a remix album. I don't really think I listen to remix albums in general. Not really a fan of remixes, but I think it was appropriate for me to cover this, especially since we have new 100 Gex material on this record. Uh, well, not so new, but I'll go over that in, in a second. But I feel like I have to go over the remixes here. And I'm glad that I ended up listening to this because I recently listened to 1000 Gex since the first time I listened to A Thousand Gex, I fucking hated it. Aside from maybe Ringtone, that's the only song that really stuck out to me as as being this fun little pop anthem. But overall, <laughs> I remember listening to A Thousand Gex for the first time. I was actually on my way to, to classes. I was still in school when I listened to A Thousand Gex. And by the time I had reached school, the album was done. And I said to myself, I am never listening to that again. (laughs) Well, it's been almost a year now. And I gave it another shot since I've become a fan of Money Machine. And I have been listening to interviews with Laura and Dylan and listening to albums that featured Dylan Brady on production, especially uh, Charlie XCX's new album. So I think it was only natural for me to want to re-listen to a thousand gex and i'm glad i did because i don't know why i disliked it in the first place it's such a creative album 
so chaotic, but in such a fun way. I even liked the ska song that they have, Stupid Horse. I don't really, if you, if you don't know, I don't really like ska. I was dreading listening to Stupid Horse because, again, I, I just not a fan of ska, but that song was even fun. I think the only song that I ended up disliking at the end of my re-listen was Gek Gek Gek. Not much going for that track. I mean, it's kind of eclectic as well and not in an interesting or fun way. It's just, a th- like, it feels like a, just a throwaway track. I kind of re-listened to that album to prepare myself for this new remix album, A Thousand Gex and The Tree of Clues, just so I can get an idea of those original songs and how these artists were going to remix these songs. I'm only going to point out some of the more notable remixes that I heard, uh, one of them being Ringtone with Charlie XCX, Rico Nasty, and Kiro Kiro Benito. This track has been out for a while now, and... I just have to say, the chorus feels so natural whenever Charlie sings it. You know, my boy's got his own ringtone. It's like, it's th- this song is Charlie's now. Every time I think of the chorus, because it's so fucking catchy, I just picture Charlie singing it now instead of Laura. I'm not, the, I'm not a person to say like, oh, this remix is better than the original. I'm more of like a, a purist in that sense. But I have to say, the, this remix is so much better than the original ringtone. Uh, I still love Ringtone. It's like the only song that I latched on to when I originally heard A Thousand Gex. But yeah, Charlie, uh, Rico, Kiro, they all did a a fantastic job. I really liked Rico Nasty's verse uh, on this one as well. Uh, A fantastic remix. And then we have the Gek to You remix with Danielle Harley. Uh, Didn't know who this person was. This is more in tune with the hardcore EDM scene. And I am not at all familiar with the hardcore EDM scene, but I ended up really liking this track a lot. It sounds like a rave. But yeah, this was a fantastic remix, especially with that amazing drop. And then we have 745 Sticky, a Black Dresses remix. I'm glad that 100 Gex and Black Dresses were able to collaborate before Black Dresses disbanded. I feel like Black Dress's abrasiveness and Debbie McCallion, especially Debbie McCallion's screaming, goes well with 100 Gex aesthetic. And we get that noisy mess at the end with all these glitches and distortion that is just perfect Black Dresses and and really does enhance this song, uh, 745 Sticky. I didn't expect to like the Hand Crush by Mallet remix with Fall Out Boy and Craig Owens. Just it, It's just a pop punk song that has a lot of screaming, a lot of abrasive noise, barely any Dylan or Laura vocals. I don't think any Dylan and Laura vocals. Yeah, this was a huge surprise as well, especially considering I'm not a fan of Fall Out Boy. I don't really listen to that much Chiodos, but this is a really fucking good remix. And then lastly, we have Get 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 remix with Lil Wes and Tony Valor. Uh, I didn't, again, I didn't really like this song. I didn't really like Get Get Get. But the rapping gives this song so much more substance than the original that I was just like, okay, they made this song good. Uh, Thank God that they made this song good because I really didn't like that track in the first place. The two new tracks that we got are Came to My Show and Toothless. Uh, Not really new songs. They're more unreleased songs that have now been recorded in the studio. They're both kind of Minecraft-centric, especially Come to My Show. 
uh, Toothless kind of has like these verses that refer to Minecraft, but I, I guess I kind of latched onto them. Like this is not a Minecraft song. Um, but I mean, this is typical hundred gex. They're, they're fun and they have this fast trap beat with these bright juvenile keyboards, especially Toothless. And, and they're abrasive and they're fun. And they're very 100 Gex. But overall, 1000 Gex and the Trio Clues is a fun remix album, especially if you're a fan of 1000 Gex. A handful of good remixes here. I didn't like every single one, although I feel like the Money Machine remix with AG Cook is kind of growing on me. But then nonetheless, the new tracks on here are also really phenomenal. And th- there's a couple of live performances from when they were at Adult Swim's Fish Center. Uh, definitely listen to the 800 dB Cloud a live version. That is also a very fun track. A thousand gex? Go listen to it. And then finally, I listened to the posthumous Juice World album, Legends Never Die. Now, I'm not a fan of Juice World. I, I mean, I, I liked Lucid Dreams. That was like the only song that really turned me onto his music. But otherwise, you know, I'm unfamiliar with trap. And I don't really listen to rappers in that style, but uh, this is my ongoing journey of trying to delve into trap music and, and listening to artists that are very popular or prominent in the genre. And so when I heard this new Juice World album was coming out, I was just like, well, I guess I should listen to it. And he was a Chicago artist. He's from my hometown. <laughs> He's, um, or home city, I should say. So I was just like, yeah, I should I should listen to this. You know, Juice World passed away from an oxycodone and, and codeine overdose. So when those drugs are mentioned in songs like Bad Energy and Righteous, it, it's a bit of a bummer. And it's just so sad because, uh, you know, a lot of these songs kind of have this subject of him being addicted to these drugs and he acknowledges his problem. And, uh, you know, maybe he was looking for help. He was looking for a way to kind of cope with his anxiety that didn't result to these highly addictive drugs. But yeah, I, I mean, it's just like listening to this this album is just so sad considering Juice World's circumstances. I do want to go over a couple of the highlights on here. Uh, Conversations, the, I guess, opening track, if you don't count the interlude, was a really good track. I really like the beat, the percussion, and the bright and poppy synths on here were all very nice to listen to. The first song that refers to his anxiety and drugs and taking drugs to help him cope with anxiety. And then after that, we go into Titanic, which has a very standard trap beat, but I think the lyrics and and Juice World's delivery uh, referring to his life sinking like the Titanic kind of saves his track. Then we have Righteous, which has these smooth, intimate guitars and and this was a good moment on here for Juice World uh, vocally. He's singing in a higher register, and I think it sounds really freaking good. Um, a melodic highlight, one of many melodic highlights on this record. Fighting Demons switches things up as Juice World's rapping is more fast-paced. Lyrics refer to fighting his inner demons, and, and also refers to money and how money correlates with his happiness. I also like how this song switches from this fast tempo to this more ethereal and spacey atmosphere. And then we have tracks like Can't Die, which is 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 hard to listen to as, you know, he talks about how he can't die and refers to how many rappers or artists that we lost in 2019. 
and he's he's one of the people that we lost in 2019, very late 2019. And the only thing that was going through my mind during this song was just like, oh fuck, you know. <laughs> and this this was this was a very hard lesson, but Can't Die is also another highlight on this record. Then we have a song like Man of the Year, which is the closing track of this record. And I was not expecting this. It was a very pop punk song that came out of nowhere, but I ended up really liking it. The bass line was groovy. Andrew Swirl did a fantastic job with the vocals as he kind of took on this pop punk vocal style. And it, it just showed him, you know, adapting to this style of music that he's not really known for. And because of that, it just shows his versatility. This was a very fun song, very surprising song to end the album with. And then by far, I think my favorite track on the record is is Wishing Well. I think this song features the best vocal delivery from Juice World, features the best beat, and features the best lyrics, which is why I, I think is this is the standout moment from the record. His voice is really the key for this song. He hits highs, but he also descends within his voice. And the lyrics refer to a cry for help. You know, drugs are killing me softly. You just can't deny that he knew that he was struggling with drugs and he just wanted to do something about it. He wanted to fix himself. He wanted to not be as dependent on them. This is by far the emotional peak of the record as well. Uh, very fantastic song. And also, I recognize those Dragon Ball Z sound effects. Whenever I'm a sucker for any Dragon Ball Z references in any rap song. So that just that was just icing on the cake. <laughs> But I think the praise stops there as a lot of these songs like refer to his problems with drugs and anxiety. And these are very serious topics to talk about. I'm glad that he addressed these topics in his music. But there's only so much you can say about it before the topic starts getting old. And I feel like, you know, we got all of the lyrical content out of the way in the like the first five songs of this record and he just kind of runs out of things to say i think the real like the middle section of this record really hurts this record i mean a song like butter my jeans is kind of confusing like he talks about how much he loves his girlfriend but but the same song ends up talking about drugs and guns and violence is very strange oh god and by far the worst track on this record is come and go uh, produced by marshmallow it's just such a jarring transition. You know, it goes from this chill and low-key track with a faster rapping style to this guitar-driven melody that drops to this jam session. It's it's just so, like, on Juice World. And this is coming from a person who's not really a fan of Juice World's music, but, like, going from the aesthetic of the other tracks, the tracks that preceded this one, it's just so out of place. But yeah, I mean, the highlights on here are very good, but there are just some lows, a lot of lows on here, actually. It even rivals the amount of highs that this record has. The lyrical content on here is also a mixed bag, as some songs are, are really well written, while others are, are sorely lacking. Even when the lyrics are on point, I feel like I keep getting the same message over and over again, and it really bogs down this record. But like I said, I definitely would listen to the tracks, that I feel are highlights, you know, Conversations, Titanic, Righteous, Fighting Demons, Can't Die, Wishing Well, and Man of the Year. These songs are fantastic. 
maybe not so man of the year if you're just a rap fan and you don't really like pop punk but for pop punk fans like me this was a fantastic surprise i really liked this track overall i think it was a very average record definitely not terrible i would definitely listen to this again i'd put a lot of these songs on my rotation and i feel like i i should listen, go back and listen to a lot of uh, other juice world projects you know it sucks cuz you know listening to this a just thinking like, yeah, he had a lot of potential. He could have really improved his sound, his style, his rapping, his lyrical content. But what we have now is is very good. It, this is a very good send-off to one of the more prominent figures in trap and emo rap. Well, that does it for this past week in music. Stay tuned, because when we come back, I'll be going over what is slowcore. You're listening to Sound Encounters with Cesar Torres. Hello and welcome back to Sound Encounters with Cesar Torres. And we're going to talk some motherfucking music. It's always fun to do these genre lists, these uh, lists to get you into the genre, because then it allows me to go back and listen to these albums that I love uh, and, and have a different perspective on them. You know, sometimes I listen to an album uh, for the first couple of times and I'm just like, oh yeah, this song sucks and I will skip over it. And I will just play the songs that I really enjoy. But when I ever, whenever I do these, and this has happened a couple times now, I will be like, okay, no, this song was really great. I'm glad I re-listened to this because I don't know what I was thinking. And I feel like this happened all over <laughs> this segment, all over the albums that I was listening to. Uh, and one album in particular that I fucking hated, I did not like it. And re-listening to this album again, I was just like, I was so wrong. I, I can't believe I disliked this album at all. But you're probably wondering what I'm talking about, and so I'll, I'll get into it. I want to talk to you today about Slowcore. Now, what the fuck is Slowcore? <laughs> because that is kind of a weird name. I thought that Slowcore was kind of like a meme name that only super fans of this type of music only gave. But no, it's a legitimate subgenre of indie and alternative rock. And it's mostly characterized by downbeat melodies, slower tempos, and minimalist arrangements. The main instruments really included with this genre are guitars, bass, drums, and piano. And when I heard my first slowcore album, I just thought it was a folk album. It sounded very folky, ignoring the bass guitar. And to an extent, I was right, since slowcore does take inspiration from folk rock and contemporary folk. But it's so much more than that, as it also takes inspiration from post-punk and dream pop. I would even go as far as saying even gothic rock. One of the more inspirational bands in the genre, Low, claims that slowcore, or at least the sound and style of slowcore, was mainly used to combat the loud and aggressive sound of alternative rock and grunge that were popularized in the early 90s. And when we listen to these albums, that statement becomes more and more evident as these arrangements are very slow. I should say that the genre was started around the very late 80s to the early 90s, which is why it was sort of like the counter genre to alt-rock and grunge. Slowcore also features 
these very depressing and sad lyrics. And because of that, Slowcore is kind of interchangeable with the name Sadcore. Uh, if you want to refer to Slowcore as Sadcore, be my guest. It's kind of like the same thing. We're going to be talking about sad boy music, the, the, the grandfathers of sad boy music. So with that, let's get into essential Slowcore albums, starting with On Fire by Galaxy 500. Galaxy 500 was formed in 1986 in Boston, Massachusetts, and was an early act that was hugely influential on the genre, even though they weren't really considered a slowcore band. On Fire is their second full-length album released in 1989. Their first album, Today, was another influential record in the slowcore genre, but I'm going to be talking about On Fire Today, as it is their more popular album. It is a bit better than Today as well, and it's it's the album that put Galaxy 500 and Slowcore on the map. The music on this record is characterized by languorous guitar movements and melancholic vocal delivery. This is evident on tracks like Tell Me. Uh, the guitar chords move at a leisurely pace, and Dean Warham's vocal delivery is quiet and languid as he sings about being misunderstood and feeling like he's going crazy. One thing that distinguishes this album from the rest of the albums that I'm going to talk about is how it feels like a drug-induced dream, both lyrically and musically. Take a look at a track like Strange, which described a time where Warham dropped acid. This results in him wailing about how everyone looks funny and is acting strange. It is kind of a funny track as well when you really delve into the lyrics. But This is by far my favorite vocal performance on this record as Warham's vocals take on this ethereal quality to it probably reflecting the subject of this song. And then we get a track like Decomposing Trees, and you just immediately know that Warham is tripping as he talks about his toes talking and smiling at him and telling him to come down from his high. This is one of my favorite musical moments on the record, as his voice has a very psychedelic quality to it. I feel like a lot of the vocal performances on here are very psychedelic, uh, but this one especially... And I was not expecting that sax to come in. It made this track all the more interesting. Another quality of this record that I really appreciate is how unpredictable it can be in that it can be very slow and quiet and then become louder and and wild at a moment's notice. I think a, a song like Strange really demonstrates that as the beginning is soft and then Warham comes in with his wild vocal delivery. By far my favorite track on this record is When Will You Come Home, which has probably the best climax on any of the songs here. Warham's guitar playing is just so breathtaking and even hypnotic. The song mainly focuses on his groovy rock and roll riff. It's a song that I would also say borders on shoegaze as there's a bit of fuzz and distortion. Maybe it's just me, but I feel like it's bordering on on the shoegaze genre. This was one of the albums that I, I heard for the first time and I just did not like, I, I fucking hated this record, but I'm glad I gave it a second chance. I think the main thing that drove me away from this record was Warham's vocal delivery. It, it's very wailing. It can be very annoying at times. I definitely thought it was annoying the first time I heard this record, but if you listen to this record and you think that, I would definitely say take a break from it, maybe like a couple weeks, and then come back to it. Maybe you'll find something different. I ended up really liking his vocal delivery at the end. It just needed I just needed to take some time off from the record 
to truly appreciate it. But yeah, as you start listening to this record, you really understand why it's so popular and why it was such an influential record to the slowcore genre. All right, the second essential slowcore album is I Could Live in Hope by Lowe. Lowe was formed in Minnesota in 1993, and a year after they formed, they released this record, another key release in the slowcore genre. As I was saying earlier, this record was mainly a reaction to the abrasive alt-rock and grunge in the early 90s. Lowe really favored mood and movement, and band members Alan Sparhawk, Mimi Parker, and John Nichols, in collaboration with their producer Mark Kramer, then crafted a record defined by slow temples and minimal arrangements. It's kind of incredible the emotions the band can convey with this minimal production. I mean, we have a song like The Crushing Lullaby, with its three guitar chords that are repeated at the beginning of the song, which then becomes the foundation of the mood of this song. Yes, Mimi Parker does refer to the death of a child on this song, but the chords really set the mood for the song at first, really giving this dismal and hopeless atmosphere. This eventually turns into a sprawling, emotional climax as the guitars rise and spiral out of control. By the end, it ends up returning to those three original chords. And then we have drag, which slogs on, but not in a bad way. The slow tempo of the bass, the guitars, and the drums work in the song's favor. This song is mainly about giving up and letting that negative feeling drag you down, which again adds to the mood and the atmosphere of this song. And the vocals have a psychedelic edge to them, which has this dreamy effect to the song. And this is not the only song that has this dreamy effect. Lazy has a similar effect. This time, the guitars are more psychedelic than the vocals. Guitars are also hazy and, and kind of have this gothic feeling to them that creates this misty atmosphere. I really like this song because the sluggish feeling that they are creating in this song really start to take effect on the listener as Sparhawk and Parker repeatedly say, you're lazy, you're lazy. They're referring to a Sarah in the lyrics. Don't know who that is. Sarah could literally be anyone. Sarah might not even be a real person, but I feel like in the moment, you are Sarah and Sparhawk and Parker are telling you that you are lazy. The opening track, Words, is probably the most soothing song on here. It's a soft and languid guitar melody that is very lulling. Vocals are equally soft and mellow, and it's a track that allows the listener to sink in and allow them to flow with the melodies. There's a lot of good highlights on here, but the last one I want to mention is Sunshine, the final track. It's a cover of the famous Jimmy Davis and Charles Mitchell classic folk song, You Are My Sunshine. Lowe's rendition focuses more on the sadness of losing a lover. But one thing that really popped out to me when I first heard the song is how eerie and cold the vocals felt. Instead of taking this lulling and dreamy effect, it takes more of a uneasy feeling Lowe continues to make music to this day. I think their last record was released in 2018 where they're more experimenting with vocal manipulation and electronics, but Lowe has this fantastic discography that I would say any slowcore fan should listen to. Albums like Long Division, The Curtain Hits the Cast, Things We Lost in the Fire, they, they really do have a fantastic, expansive discography. Now, the third album I want to talk about is Down Colorful Hill by Red House Painters. This album was essentially my introduction into the slowcore genre, and I had a real dilemma 
with picking either this record or Red House Painters 1, aka Roller Coaster, because both of these records are just so fantastic. But I ended up going with this one as I feel like Down Colorful Hill has more memorable and effective compositions. This was released in 1992 with Mark Kozalik at the helm of Red House Painters. If you recognize that name, it's because he is now the frontman and creator of indie folk band Sunkill Moon. And this is where he really got his start. And it's so fun to revisit this record after listening to years of Sunkill Moon because Kozlik was very depressed and very hopeless about his situation when he recorded this record. We get a song like 24, the bleak opener where Kozlik talks about getting older. What makes this song especially depressing is that he comes across as feeling stuck. He's not young anymore, but he understands at 24, when he wrote this song, he doesn't have that youthful optimism anymore. And as a creator, as an artist, he feels like he needs to create this music to get him famous. He essentially is basically talking about how much potential he has at the young age of 24. We can look back on this track now and be like, oh, Mark, you're so famous now. This record essentially made him and the band one of the more prominent figures in indie rock music around the 90s. And of course, he has Sun Kill Moon and he's still making music now and, and records like Benji and April and Ghosts of the Great Highway make him a prominent figure in the 2000s and 2010s. Getting back to the music on this record, 24 exemplifies the elements of slowcore with its soft and slow-moving guitars, minimal until the drums kick in. My favorite tracks on this record have to both be Medicine Bottle and Down Colorful Hill, the title track. Both of these compositions use their lengthy runtime to their advantage. Chord progression is drawn out and languorous and even repetitive, but Kozlik uses repetition to his advantage. And we also have percussion to match this chord progression. And then we also have Kozlik's weary style of singing. In fact, on Medicine Bottle, it sounds more like he's speaking than singing more like he's reciting a poem. And of course, we have the lyrics to these songs. Medicine Bottle describes a bad breakup that has clearly damaged Kozilek. And as the song continues, you realize the reason why he's so tortured is at his own fault. He shuts out the world he once knew to love you. And at this point, he's kind of referring to himself. It's all of his own making a war with himself. Down Colorful Hill is Kozilek talking about hope and how quickly that can die out. And within the song, there's a feeling of dread, almost like Kozlik is expecting things will not work out for him. Both songs have this break near the middle of their runtimes where the music reaches the climax. In Medicine Bottle, a faster and dramatic drumline accentuates this break. And in Down Colorful Hill, we have this distorted guitar solo with Kozlik wailing in the background. It's just powerful stuff. And one last track I'd like to mention is... Japanese to English, another one of my favorites off of this record. I really love the ethereal quality of the guitars on this track. You can hear the jangly chords reverberate, creating this dreamy and warm atmosphere. I would say that Kozilek actually does sing on this track, although it can teeter on singing or, or spoken word. It, it's weird, but whenever I think about this song, his delivery on the lines Japanese to English or English to Japanese always sticks out in my mind. It's really catchy and contributes to why I constantly return to this song. The next record I'd like to talk about is Frigid Stars by Codeine. This record was released in 1990 and another band and project that helped shape the sound and style of Slowcore. 
that really stands out about this record than any other record here is how you can really feel the agony, both musically and in the vocal delivery. The guitars have this sludgy dissonance to them, and it creates this desolate feeling to most of these songs. Just listen to the roaring aggression of songs like Pickup Song and Cave In, or D, the opening track, as it really hits you in the face with the noise as it opens with loud and abrupt guitars. Vocalist Stephen Emmerwar really sells the pain with his vocals. On Second Chance, Emmerwar's singing is a bit monotone. We hear a lack of emotion as he sings about missing his lover and missing their smile. Emmerwar is just numb and cold, creating this very uneasy feeling, creating this very desolate feeling. On Gravel Bed, he's very dejected as he's singing things I thought might come true, they never do. And on that song, you can really hear the suffering on his voice. He's also very distraught on old things, his sad and quiet delivery of I thought I tried, but what, what does that mean? Walk, just walk away and throw old things away. Nothing sticks to you, not even what you want to. Not all of the emotional delivery is reliant on the lyrics and vocal delivery, however, as the music, especially on a track like Old Things, is equally grim and bleak, as the slow and slogging guitar riff adds to the agony of this track. By far my favorite track on this record is Cigarette Machine, as it closely resembles a slint track with spoken word passages and switches from the slow and quiet to the loud and confrontational. Both the lyrics and the guitars are very grimy, and the lyrics refer to bile and vomit and cigarettes. It's a, just a very disgusting song. But yeah, coding really did help in establishing the slow core sound, even though they didn't really release that much music past this release. However, their legacy in the genre still stands. And now the last record I want to talk about is Songs About Leaving by Carissa's Weird. Now we are switching to the agony of Codeine to the utterly depressing of Carissa's Weird. Carissa's Weird, which is spelled W-I-E-R-D, was formed in Tucson, Arizona in 1995. This record was released in 2002 and has a more indie rock and chamber rock sound to it than any of the other records on this list. And like I mentioned before, it, this is a very depressing album, but it also combats that with kind of this humor this unexpected humor that is found on the titles of these tracks. You know, we get names like Ignorant Piece of Shit or Sophisticated Fuck Princess Leave Me Alone or Low Budget Slow Motion Soundtrack Song for the Leaving Scene. Because of these humorous titles, I expected a more uplifting or different take on the slowcore genre, but no, that's not what I got. You know, we got a song like So You Want to Be a Superhero that deals with suicidal thoughts and struggling with the pain of those thoughts. Band members Jen Champion and Matt Brooke take the vocals for this song, but Champion's vocals are much more prominent here than Brooke's. Her voice sounds like she's on the verge of tears, like she's a broken person and, and she's going to break at any point. The music then accompanies this very well, as the guitar melody is very melancholic. It's very minimalist, but it's very effective to the mood that they're going for. Then we get a song like Ignorant Piece of Shit, which is about a marriage with a person who is self-destructive and who seems to talk badly behind the narrator's back. Brook and Champion's vocal harmonies sound really great here, as well as the string arrangement. Just fucking beautiful. But this beautiful composition doesn't really fit with the nasty narrative 
that this song provides. But I'm starting to feel like this is the selling point of Carissa's Weird's music. I mean, you get a song like They'll Only Miss You When You Leave, which is a very soft and gentle piano and guitar melody that is accompanied by these soft strings before the vocals and the drums kick in, creating this faster tempo song. Again, the lyrics are just depressing, but the beautiful and and sometimes upbeat arrangement kind of take away from that. Maybe it's the band's way of combating these depressing topics. And then the last song I want to talk about is a low-budget slow-motion soundtrack for the leaving scene. Guitars and violins sound very indie rock. They move very slow, yet very precise. However, the vocals and lyrics are very slow core, as they refer to waiting for the person that they love, waiting for as long as they have to. It's a beautiful record. I would recommend this record. However, just expect the depressing as all hell lyrics. And yeah, that's my list of essential slowcore albums that has been slowcore. There's a lot of other albums in this genre that are fantastic, such as Galaxy 500's first full-length record, Red House Painters, even Sun Kill Moon uh, delves into a bit of slowcore. But yeah, this is a fantastic, beautiful, yet depressing genre. Let me know what you think of the genre. If I missed an album, if you think an album should have been included on the list that I didn't include, let me know on my Twitter at Sound Encounters. And let me know what genre I should do next. All right, so that does it for this week of Sound Encounters. You know, we're coming up on 40 years of Joy Division's second full-length album, Closer. And you know, maybe next week I might just do a little look back at Joy Division's Closer. For all you Joy Division fans, we'll be taking a look back at that record next week. But of course, I'm always open for new ideas. If you want to hear a genre guide, if you want to hear an artist guide, you can let me know on the new Sound Encounters Twitter, at Sound Encounters. Go give that a follow and give me some suggestions. You can now listen to this podcast on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Overcast, and Spotify and Apple. Thank you to Soundstripe for their wonderful selection of music, which I use today. And thank you for tuning in and listening and supporting my little show here. I'm Caesar. This has been Sound Encounters, and I'll see you next week.